0: If you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. We will be studying verses 3 through 4. Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. In the evening times, we've been going through the book of Jeremiah. Um, in Sunday school, we went through the book of Ezekiel, went through Daniel this morning, looking through O Palmer Robertson, Christ of the Prophets. And we know that what Jeremiah is speaking of in chapter 31, which is the new covenant, and what Ezekiel and Isaiah and even Daniel was pointing to was the new covenant, I figured this is a roundabout way to preach Jeremiah 31 to you, is to preach to you the after effects of the new covenant that you are living in currently. So this week I'll speak about the after effects, those things that are still lingering, and then next week I'm going to talk about the blueprints in the evening time. So if you like this one, it's probably going to be a mere sermon to Jeremiah 31. It's on my mind and on my heart, so I pray and hope that it encourages you this morning. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we hear the word preached, as we hear it read, for we know that the reading of the word is is potent and effectual, and God can use it. And let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word, that he would use this also as we hear this really long sentence in the Greek, verses 3 and 4. Father, we come before you, and we know that the reading of the Word can be used in powerful ways. Many of us have just read the Word, and You have strengthened our faith. Some hearts have even been changed. You've regenerated their hearts as they read through Scripture. Men and women, all throughout history, have read Your Word, and You have changed them, O God. Father, we also know the preaching of the Word is used in special ways throughout your kingdom. All around the world, the word is being preached. Men and women are convicted of their sins and they're turning to you. Men and women who are struggling find encouragement in your word. People who are reading the newspapers understand the chaos in this world are finding hope from the very word preached. Those who have sadness in their hearts and need peace, are in the right place this morning. So Father, we pray that your word would go forth, do what it's intended to do, strengthen hearts. May they see your Son, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And thus ends the reading the very word of God. Some of you know I was a youth pastor in 2000. And there was this girl who visited our youth ministry who came from a hockey family. Not familiar with hockey, but her father, who grew up in San Jose, really loved the San Jose Sharks, and he built this roller blade rink. Couldn't afford the ice hockey rink, they're a little more expensive, but he made this roller hockey rink and they played hockey. And and his father, as he drops his daughter off and says, you know what? A lot of students are coming here to play this roller hockey. My family's here. I play. Why don't you go buy yourself some rollerblades and come play roller hockey? Well, there's a problem. One, I'm from southeast Georgia. I don't know anything about the game of hockey. Nothing. Two, I've never been on rollerblades. And three, I'm real top-heavy. Right? I get pushed down. It just it doesn't work well for me but I did what every youth pastor would do. I went and bought those rollerblades, and I had so much gear. And you know, your weight doesn't really help when you're on rollerblades, by the way. They can just push you. And I remember I was turning left for whatever reason. I think I was turning left. I have no clue what I did. But I remember something happened to my knee. I was like, wow, that really hurt. You know, I went to the doctor, and they said, oh, you need to go to physical therapy. Things will be fine. And you know, to this day, I still had this lingering pain in my right knee. My left knee has always been stronger. And many of you know what I'm talking about. You have these lingering pains for something that took place in your childhood or your high school. It just continues to linger. You will live with that the rest of your life. These effects of something that took place. We are living today with the new covenant lingering every day. What took place on Calvary and what Jeremiah, what Isaiah, what Ezekiel, what they were speaking about, you are still feeling and living in the lingering effects today. What you experience today is what they spoke about before Christ and what Christ accomplished on Calvary you still live and experience today. I think Paul has Jeremiah 31 on his mind. Not just me, but others believe that also. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. If you read chapter 7, it's all about life in the flesh. Chapter 8 is all about life in the Spirit. And we know Jeremiah 31 is about the Spirit of God doing something incredible in your heart and the heart from here on out of many, many people. I believe that's what it's meant by the law of the Spirit of life. It's an odd way to put it, but I think Paul is right in saying this. The Spirit is doing something inside of you. And God has done something inside of us. And to this day, we are different people. And if you're taking notes, I just want to show you five things. It's a Sunday morning, so I get an extra two points. First thing I want to see is the law's continued limitations. It's still lingering. You know, there was limitations in the Old Covenant, and there's still limitations today. The second thing that's still lingering is this better mediator. Oh, what a better mediator we have today. The third thing that's still lingering is this eternal sacrifice. If you noticed, what took place in the Old Covenant is nothing like what we're living in today. The fourth thing is we want to see this covenantal righteousness God sees us a bit differently by His grace, and we praise the Lord for it. And the fifth thing I want to see is this lingering spirit that lives inside of us with power now, which is exciting to preach about. As we look at the first part of this sermon as this lingering as the law's limitations, I want to talk to you about my dog. Some of you know I want a massive bull mastiff or a pit bull but instead I have a 10-pound Westie Poo. I was walking my dog on Thursday around the neighborhood, and this guy came with this big, massive truck. It was lifted, and he had big tires on it, and he had a big German Shepherd sticking out, out of the truck window, and he drove by, and me and Toby both looked kind of jealous. <laughs> you know, Toby felt the jealousy. I felt the jealousy. Yeah, that's not... Us, you know, you could take Toby and drop him in the middle of the woods and you could say, okay, Toby, go run a deer. And I can run off and I can get ready for the deer to get run. Toby will be dead in five minutes. He submits to everyone. He has no loyalty. You tell him what to do. He's going to listen. I think a little tiny squirrel may eat my little dog. He was never designed to be a hunting dog. Some of you have great hunting dogs that can hunt, that maybe can go catch ducks, that can fetch things in the water. Someone in our church takes his dog to work with him, a bloodhound. He may be ten minutes away. He's going to run back and find the truck. Not my dog. He's not designed to do that. The Mosaic Law was never designed for your salvation. You need to understand that here. It was never designed to save you. If you remember when God, through Moses, gave the covenantal people the law of God, do this and live, they were already rescued. They were enslaved in Israel for over 400 years and God in His kind providence rescues them, saves them. Remember the blood on the doorpost and the death angel that passed? They've already understood the blood. They already understood that God makes a way. He saves them and now sits them down. Okay, my children that I love, now that you're in a covenant with me, in a relationship with me, now live rightly. There's limitations. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could never save. It couldn't save in the Old Covenant, and it can't save now. It was never designed to save. But it doesn't mean that it's completely useless. It doesn't mean that it's bad and unholy. See, in America, when we find a law is too difficult, we just change it. We saw that in the 70s with the sexual revolution. We see it with sexual unions here now, same-sex unions. Ah, oh, That's just too difficult. Let's just change it. We will make everyone happy. That's not how the law of God works. When God says to love your neighbors yourself, which is the summary, the last five tables of the law, He means it. He doesn't take that back. When God says you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's not going to change that just because you can't do it. What was the limitations? It sure wasn't God's law. God's law is perfect. It represents his holiness. The problem was your heart. The problem was my heart. That's the limitations. For what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, what... It couldn't you're the problem, and I'm the problem. We can't keep it. Paul will say in Romans seven verse 12, "The law is holy, and the commandment holy, and righteous and good, the law has never been the problem. We don't attack God's law. We don't attack God for being holy. From the time of Moses, throughout all time including Adam, Christ was always plan A. I hope you understand that. From the beginning of time, before there was no time, Jesus Christ was plan A. Your salvation through Christ and Christ alone has always been plan A. Do you remember reading in the Old Testament about sacrifice God knew the law that He gave them could not even be kept. They couldn't even keep it. He knew that. So He gave them what? A way to be forgiven because He's gracious and kind. The sacrificial system was, yes, pointing to Christ, but it was also God's gracious way to say, listen, I know you're going to mess up. I know you're going to sin. I know you can't keep that which I demand. So you have a way to be forgiven. You have a way. And not only is there some lingering limitations that are still on us today, you can't keep the law well enough to make it to glory. God is that holy. But we also have a better mediator. Now Moses was a great mediator. I don't know how much patience you have. Oh, but Moses, a very humble man and a very patient man. I think I would have lost it in the wilderness somewhere. Moses did not. He, but he didn't lose it at the end of his life, did he not? Did he not get a little frustrated? Some of us reading, we're like, ah, I totally, completely understand. But the problem is, he got frustrated with God, also, did he not? Moses, great man, great mediator. How much better is Jesus? Jesus. The perfect mediator Moses right the priest that can just declare you well you don't look too righteous today don't want you coming around God unclean let's take him out of the camp Jesus just doesn't declare you clean he makes you clean how much better of a priest do we have how much better of a mediator do we have and trust me you need a mediator (laughs) you need one you, you have sin, and you need a mediator to get to God, just as the old covenantal people needed a mediator to get to God. Oh, we don't want to speak to God directly. Have Moses speak to us. They knew their sin. We go to God boldly through Christ, our mediator. And what makes Christ so amazing is he's the eternal God of the universe, the second person of the Godhead, and yet he takes upon himself a body. Is that not just mind-blowing to you? That the one who created all things for him and through him and by him chose to add to himself a body, flesh and bones, and come to earth. We read this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now you got to be careful here. My nephew, who was quoting the Lord's Prayer last week, he said, Hallowed be our name. I was like, whoa! Our? You just put yourself within the Godhead. He's like, No, oh, I didn't do it on purpose. I promise. I just... <laughs> and as I was explaining to him, we can't do that. Here I do the same thing. And he's like, Where you go? You made yourself... I was like, Oh, no. I spoke too fast. When we speak about God... You must slow down. You must think. Have you ever accidentally been a heretic? There's some heretics that are purposely heretics, and they're bad, but sometimes you'll say something, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not right. Did I just used the wrong pronoun for God, or did I say something wrong? It's okay to think those thoughts, because you're thinking about the God of the universe, and you're speaking about the God of the universe. And here, what many people have done throughout the years... They want to promote their heresy, so they go to this passage like the docetists who say, you know what, Jesus wasn't really human, because human flesh is terrible. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh. He can't be really human. It's not what he's saying here. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh. And at the same time, there are other people who say, see, he can't be God. He can't be God, clearly, because we know all people who have flesh are sinners. Therefore, he can't be God. He has to be something other. Paul was very careful in how he worded this. He wanted people to know that he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Meaning this, he was 100% God. He was in the likeness. He wasn't exactly like you and me. He was born of supernatural birth, yet at the same time, he was human. Our mediator is both God and man. Sinclair Ferguson and his little book on Mark that we've been reading at 6 a.m. I know a lot of y'all show up at 6 a.m. to the men's Bible study real early, but it's worth it very much worth it. Sinclair Ferguson last week talked about the second person of the Godhead taking on flesh and identifying himself with sinners. We read that he was numbered with the transgressors. His baptism is crucial in the life and ministry of Jesus. You remember John the Baptist is baptizing Sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner. And that entire Jordan River is just flooded with sins. And Jesus steps in that water, who did not need baptism, and said, baptize me. Why? Because he was numbered with transgressors. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. And those sinful waters were poured over his head anointing him as the one who would come and pay for our sins. John Calvin, speaking about this mediator, Jesus, who identifies with the people, says that Christ had no pollution and stains at all, but it behooved our high priest to learn by his own experience how to aid the weak. Christ underwent our infirmities, that he might be more inclined to sympathy And in this respect, also there appeared some resemblance of a sinful nature without ever sinning. Meaning, he got sick. You think about the flu. Sometimes we breathe bad germs and we get sick. Jesus never got sick from within. It was always from without. But yet he still experienced that sickness. He experienced the pain. He experienced the sadness. He loved more than you and I. He had more sadness than you and I. If you lose a loved one, you are saddened. But you can't even love like Jesus. Imagine the sadness he had. You know, the more you love, the more sadness that you can have. Jesus was sad and was hurt like no one else. You think it's painful when someone stabs you in the back because you love that person? Imagine the amount of love Jesus had for that person. He would have felt it much, much more. He experiences all these curses on your behalf. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, like you and me, but yet God. We've seen this lingering effect of the limitations. They're still there. He's a much better mediator. Oh, can He connect with us. But three... This linger effect is eternal sacrifice. I don't know if you think about the Jewish people. If you read Romans, you need to. If you read anything in Scripture, Galatians, you need to think about this. You need to have categories. Of course, you know no Jewish person who claims to be Jewish can tell you what tribe they're from. can't happen today. Um, we know that the ten tribes, the lost tribes, they really... The Assyrians tried to eradicate them, and they got spread all over the world. You really can find Jewish people in Africa. There's people that make claims even in Puerto Rico. There's people in Spain. And even all the way to England, all the way around the world, people claim to be these ten lost tribes. And I like to say where there's smoke, there's fire. There's probably some truth at that. There's probably some drops of blood, of Jewish blood and heritage in there because all the tribes were spread out through all the world. But ask someone who claims to be Jewish, why don't you make sacrifices anymore? And if you're watching the news, this is very relevant. I'm not going to get into my philosophies, but it's relevant. You can put the pieces of the puzzle together. You won't make sacrifices. There are no more sacrifices. Something cataclysmic has taken place in the form in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's no more sacrifice. I mean, that was the highlight to every person in the Old Covenant. We're going to make that trek. We're going to make it down to Jerusalem. And we're going to make that sacrifice. And if you can't afford the lamb, you can get a pigeon like Jesus had to pay for because he was poor. But there's provisions for everyone. And there were sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices. And here comes Jesus. And there is no more sacrifice. Look at this. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, my ESV Bible that I'm reading does not have a footnote. My other ESV does have a footnote. I don't know why they didn't put the footnote. Now I'm arguing they didn't put the footnote in there. It bothers me. I like the footnote. And the reason that footnote should be in there is because some of your Bibles talk about this sin offering. peri harmatias, which basically means for this type of sin and the Septuagint any time in the Old Covenant they would talk about a sin offering they would use the same verbiage that Paul uses and I think what Paul is doing which he does this often is he's quoting and picking up the language of the Septuagint and he says this is a sin offering because what Weakened by the flesh, the law could not do. He sends His own Son to the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Literally, your sins deserved to have blood spilt, like in the Old Covenant. And here comes God sending His Son for sin. You know, God just doesn't let the law just disappear. He doesn't just sweep your sins under the rug. The punishment your sin deserved doesn't just go away. It gets placed on Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel, my friends. Your sin deserves death, hell, misery. But instead of you having to pay that price, Jesus pays it for you. All those covenantal sacrifices were pointing to Jesus Christ coming And what we live now is in a time where the greatest injustice ever was done is for our blessings. We don't have to go to, as Josh said, we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We can worship God here because the eternal sacrifice of Christ has been made. And children, little kids, I remember when I was little, I used to say this, it's not that big of a deal, mom. It was just a little sin, mom. You know what your children's catechism teaches about those little sins, even the littlest of sin caused Jesus to be crucified. And how many times does that children's catechism teach us adults, right? It's not that big of a deal, is it? Oh yes, those little sins put Jesus on the cross you know it was sin that put Jesus on the cross. And yet people in our world think, well, sin's not that big of a deal, right? It was a big enough deal that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who added upon Himself a body, who came and lived a perfect life, who never sinned one time, it was a big enough deal for Him to be crushed for our iniquities. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and the wrath of God was poured out upon Him. And He was such a perfect mediator and such a perfect sacrifice. One time. His one sacrifice purified everyone starting from Adam and anyone who would believe in him from now on. And not only was he a better sacrifice and for sin, a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. And the problem with this word is we don't use this word the way Paul uses this word. Let me help you understand how Paul uses this word. One of my favorite meals is tuna tetrazzini. Now, you may think when I ask my wife to make tuna tetrazzini, she goes to the fish market and buys a piece of tuna and cuts it up, puts in the cream and mixes it all up. I don't like that. I want you to go to Food line and buy that 99-cent box of Tuna Helper. And I want you to put that can of tuna in. And every now and then, we get, you know, we get crazy. We throw some peas in there, right? And we stir it up. You put the milk in there. I think it's three cups. My memory serves me right. And you put that, what, a quarter stick of butter. I don't, I don't make it much. Anyway, you stir it up. You let it sit there and simmer for 12 minutes, maybe 18. But it's amazing. Four helpings, four servings. Danielle gets her little bowl. And I get my not-so-little bowl, and we have dinner. And last week, I remember as I was eating the tuna tetrazzini, I just went to the gym, I was so excited about seconds. And I went to get that last serving, and I got that look from your wife, like, seriously, you just ate all four servings. The condemnation, right? That, the, the look of condemnation... Like, are you seriously going to eat the rest of this? And what do most people say? Don't judge me. Don't condemn me for having the last bit of the tuna helper. I know it's not healthy. Don't judge me. That's not how this word is being used. Something you do may be condemnable, but that's not how Paul uses it. Paul uses it, Like a judge. Like if someone went and killed someone and they stood before the judge and the judge looks at them and says, you have been found guilty by a jury of your peers. Now I will condemn you to what? Two life sentences. or I'll condemn you to they will kill you on death row. You'll be sentenced. That is how Paul uses this term. It's more of being sentenced than it is... A condemned act. And he does this often. He speaks of, oh death, where is your victory? He speaks to death like he's a person. What he does here with sin is he sentences it to death. As Mole would say, he sentenced sin to death in the flesh. He did not pardon it. He ordered it to execution. When Christ died, the power of sin died with Him. Sin no more has power over your life. In the New Covenant, sin has no more power over your life. He crushed the head of the serpent and all the power that comes with Him. Which brings us to the fourth part of our sermon, this lingering effect of this covenantal righteousness. You know, out of all the language in these these verses, this is probably the most debated. Verse 4. John Calvin, Charles Hodge, they have a different view than Martin Lloyd-Jones and Hendrickson. And he's a heavy hitter. And you look through most commentaries, they give you both sides. That's what commentaries do. They let you pick the side you want to take. But Hodge says this, if verse 3 is understood as the sacrificial death of Christ which that's what I proclaimed, and the condemnation of sin as a substitute for sinners, which I just claimed, then this verse must be understood as justification and not sanctification. See, what a lot of people do, and they do the same thing in one sixteen and 17 of Romans, and I made that argument a long time ago, I won't make it again, is that we forget that in Christ we get both justification and sanctification. But sanctification is never the basis of our salvation. Your law keeping is never the basis of your salvation. Paul just makes that comment to us. He just says that to us. You are weak in the flesh. There's no amount of law keeping that can save you and there's no amount of law keeping that can keep you saved. Not now or for the future. You're not going to stand before God and be justified based upon your law keeping. You won't. God is either going to look at you as in Christ or in Adam. And he sends his son Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He broke the power of sin. He punished Christ instead of punishing you. Why? Why? in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He does this so you can be righteous. But wait a minute, I'm not good at keeping the law. You're right, you're not. But how does God see you? God sees you as righteous. This is why God can look at you. This is more about adoption, in my opinion, than it is even justification. You are in the family of God now. He sees you as if you have never sinned. How do you fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? You put your faith in that sin offering, and you put your faith in the man who came and lived the life that you could not live. Your righteousness is based upon that law-keeping that Jesus does for for you. He does this. Why? Because you still have to fulfill the law, but it's fulfilled what? In Christ. How amazing is that? That God looks at you as a righteous person based upon His Son. If you would just embrace Him and love Him. Which brings us to the fifth part of this sermon. The last lingering effect is the new spirit within us. God must cleanse to dwell. You remember reading Joshua and the cleansing of the land and they take the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the, the literal presence of God, and they, they sit in that land. After they, they exiled all those who lived there, they purged that land. They had to get the filth and the sin out so God can live there. And He does that to our hearts, does He not? Does He not purge the filth? He, he pays for it on the cross he breaks the power of sin and He dwells within our hearts. And the lingering effect is those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit, you could say, was like water in a dam and every now and then the dam would allow water to come out so people can drink or they could make power. I know they didn't make power, just follow the illustration. All the illustrations break down. But in the New Covenant, that dam's gone. And the water's just flowing and rushing everywhere. You could say a fire hydrant versus a little eyedropper. And a major difference is what? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead in power. And He sends forth the Spirit. And now you can tell a little kid, Jesus lives in you even though they're little and Jesus was big. Why? Because the Spirit lives in you. And He's changed you. And you drank from these living waters. You have a new nature. And you keep remembering that in your union with Christ, you get both justification and sanctification. The same power that saves you will be the same power that keeps you saved. And when the Holy Spirit works in a special way inside of your heart, when Jesus Christ lives inside of you, the resurrected Christ lives inside of you with power, you can now say with King David, I love thy law. Because you know this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to love your neighbor. He, He wants you to love him. It's not a burden anymore. It's a joy to follow our Lord and Savior. It's a joy to keep thy statutes. Not for justification. You're still powerless to do that. It's because you love to please God. John Stott would say about Romans 8, freedom from the law is never freedom to disobey it. Christ, in Christ, allows us to live differently. To live according to the Spirit. But I want to remind you what Paul said in chapter 7. Did any of y'all get the chicken pox growing up? I, I, I did. And I've been told, I'll have to confirm with some of the science people, that that still lies dormant inside of you. And oftentimes it comes out as shingles the older you get. And though the Spirit lives in you, in your union with Christ... That sin nature lies dormant in you. Always. And you have to learn to kill it. You have to learn to starve it. I don't know what your sin is, I know mine. I know I have to starve it. I know I have to keep going back to the cross. Because at the end of the day, Paul says that your sinful passions is what aroused the law in your members. James says, it is your desire that caused the sin. This is the reason Paul continually tells us to walk according to the Spirit. We go back to the cross, not just for our justification, but also for our sanctification. You want to live a Spirit-filled life in Christ? Go to the cross. That is not just the foundation, but that is what will get us home. As we close, really, all of these are the lingering effects of God's eternal love. You read that in Jeremiah. It's very clear. Long before you get to verse 31, which everybody just wants to get to right away, He's loved us with everlasting love. Before the foundation of the world, He has loved us so much that He sent His Son Christ to die for us. And living in the New Covenant is is living in that love. Knowing that God loves you so much that He sent His Son. And because He has changed you, you want to please Him. You want to. You have that desire. And if you don't have that desire, go home with your Bible and ask God to give you the desire. Because in your mind, you know it's right. But enjoy the New Covenant. What blessings we have with the new mediator and the spirit empowerment. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word.